Welcome back, Crimesters. It's your girl, Holly, and I am back today with another murder case for you. Unlike last week's case, this case is a solved murder case. However, the victim's body has never been recovered, and her family remains hopeful that someday she will be found so she can get a proper burial. So let's go ahead and dive into the details of this case. Today's case is on the abduction and murder of Sierra Lamar. Sierra May Lamar was born on October 19, 1996 in Fremont, California to her parents Marlene and Steve Lamar. She was Steve and Marlene's second daughter, and she had an older sister named Danielle that she grew up very close to. She was described to be this bright and bubbly young lady. She was the light of the Lamar family and was always the person that everyone knew that they could go to to lift them up when they were feeling down. She was extremely funny and goofy, and she enjoyed creating these funny videos of her dancing around and singing songs. All around, she seemed to be the life of the party and someone that people really gravitated towards. In 2012, Sierra was a 15-year-old girl who loved social media. Like most teenagers back then and even today, social media was the center of her world. She would eat, breathe, sleep social media, and she was very active online on both Twitter and Facebook. Sometime in late 2011, Sierra's parents ended their marriage, and after the divorce, Sierra moved from Fremont with Marlene to a place called Morgan Hill. Marlene had met someone else and wanted to move there for a fresh new start with her daughter. And it was only Sierra and Marlene that had moved there because Sierra's older sister, Danielle, was away in Sacramento at college. According to an article by CBS News, even though Danielle was away at college, she and Sierra communicated at least every few days, where they would catch up on the latest news, and they would each take turns talking about friends and school and, of course, boys. Marlene had taken Sierra to Morgan Hill for this fresh start, and naturally being a teenage girl with lots of friends, Sierra was really upset about this move. She didn't want to change schools, she didn't want to miss out on big events with her friends, and overall she was just upset by the entire thing. But once she started school in Morgan Hill, things weren't as bad as I think she anticipated. Again, she was this sweet and funny, beautiful girl. Popularity and friends came easy to her. She became a cheerleader at her new school called Anne Sobrato High School, and things kind of just fell into place for Sierra. But of course, she had her days where she felt down about leaving Fremont and enjoyed the moments that she got to go back to Fremont to see her dad and her friends. On March 16, 2012, Sierra's beautiful short life would abruptly come to an end. Marlene woke up that morning as she did every weekday to get ready for work. 
But before leaving, she stopped off at Sierra's room to tell her that she loved her and that she would see her later. Marlene said in an interview that this was something that she did every morning before leaving for work, just to kind of remind her daughter just how much she loved her and that she wasn't alone because she knew that the move was a struggle. Sierra was just waking up herself and was starting her morning routine before school when her mother walked out of the door that day. Around 7 a.m., Sierra had gotten herself ready for school. She curled her hair, applied makeup, and took a cute selfie that she posted to her social media accounts. At 7.10 a.m., Sierra texted one of her good friends from school, and the two sent a few text messages back and forth about meeting up at the school before it started to exchange some homework and makeup. Around 7.15 a.m., Sierra left her house in a residential neighborhood to walk to the bus stop, which was about a five-minute walk from her home. Now, let me just give you guys kind of like the lay of the land here. Where Sierra lived, it was surrounded by a lot of farmland. And though she lived within this residential neighborhood, just outside of this neighborhood, it was very rural and surrounded by a ton of farms. Typically, Sierra was the only student to ride that bus, and once getting on the bus, her school was about another 5 to 10 minutes away. Later that afternoon, when Marlene got off of work, she called Sierra like she did every afternoon to tell her that she was off of work and headed home. Sierra would always answer, and typically she would be on the bus ride back home after school, or she would be outside of the school waiting for the bus to pick them up when that call came in. But on March 16th, Sierra didn't answer that routine phone call. At first, Marlene just figured Sierra missed the call, maybe she was chatting it up with her girlfriends, and she really didn't think anything of it. But when she got back home, she found that Sierra wasn't there. She checked all of the rooms and there was no sign of her. At this point, she kind of got angry. Her mind instantly didn't think that there was something wrong. Instead, she was more so assuming that Sierra was just being a forgetful teenager and didn't communicate her after-school plans with her mom. So she tried calling her again and again and no answer. Angry, Marlene started thinking that maybe Sierra had ran off to Fremont to be with her dad for the weekend without permission. So she calls up Steve, and to her surprise, he hadn't seen or heard from her either. At this point, I think Marlene started to feel kind of anxious. This really was out of character for her daughter, and so her mind started racing thinking that maybe something bad had happened. So she began calling all of Sierra's friends that she could think of, frantically asking if any of them had seen or heard from her, but nobody had. This is when Marlene called the Ann Sobrato High School to ask if her daughter had been at school, and she learned that Sierra had been marked absent for all of her classes that day. I have to say that this is where I hate the way that some school districts or schools handle their absences. With my husband being in the military, my kids have attended several different school districts, and one of the schools my oldest son went to, if a student was marked absent by 9.30 a.m., I was receiving an automated phone call stating that he was absent. I feel like having a faster notification system like this is beneficial in missing persons cases because you're alerted quicker if your child never made it to school. 
However, it seems like Anne Sobrato did not have that type of system in place because it wasn't until later afternoon, early evening, that Marlene learned that her daughter never made it to school that day. After many attempts at trying to locate her daughter, Marlene called the police for assistance. An officer responded to the home pretty quickly to further investigate. Unfortunately, Marlene really didn't have a lot of information to give the authorities. Because she had left the house before Sierra even really got out of bed, she didn't know what she was wearing, what time she left the house, nothing. The police asked if there were any reason that Marlene could think of that Sierra would be upset or mad to the point that she would run away. Marlene mentioned the recent move, but said overall Sierra was settling in well at Ansebrado School and all seemed to be well most days. The police told Marlene that Sierra had to be missing for a certain amount of time before they could officially report her as missing, and he chalked up her absence to her just being a rebellious teen who ran off. And I just want to stop and say here that this is not the case. There is no minimum time that a person has to be missing before they can officially be reported. This is a myth. This is something that you often see on TV where families are told 48 hours. And I just want to say this is not true. If you ever find yourself in this unfortunate situation, do not allow anyone to tell you that you have to wait to file a missing persons report. Demand that it be done and do not take no for an answer. But because Marlene was adamant that this was unlike her daughter, the police began an investigation. First and foremost, they knew that they had to start establishing a timeline to figure out when she was last seen and by who. They knew that Marlene had seen Sierra in her bedroom that morning at 6 a.m. From there, they were able to determine that around 7.10 a.m., Sierra sent out her last text message communications. They learned from these messages that it seemed like Sierra actually didn't run off like they initially thought. This was a girl who was discussing getting to school and meeting up with a friend to exchange makeup and homework. She had clear plans for that morning that did not include running away. I think it was this little interaction with her friend that really made authorities go, okay, yeah, maybe something here isn't right. They learned that every morning at 7.25 a.m., Sierra would hop on the bus that was just down the road from her house. But after speaking to the bus driver, they learned that Sierra was not at that bus stop that morning. So between 7.10 a.m. and 7.25, something happened. The investigators went out to look around this area to see if there was any kind of surveillance cameras, and unfortunately, due to it being mainly farmland around there, they couldn't find any. Now, During this time, when some of the investigators are working on piecing together this timeline, another team was tasked with interviewing people that knew Sierra, which included many of her friends from both Fremont as well as friends in Morgan Hill. The friends were very honest with authorities telling them that the divorce and move had been very hard for Sierra, and she often talked about wanting to go back to Fremont. Some of her friends even mentioned that Sierra had once said that she wanted to run away. So the authorities were kind of caught in the middle here of not really knowing if this was an abduction or if Sierra really did run off. And they really had to look at this case at all angles and all aspects and really keep an open mind with it. 
One thing that really caught their attention, though, was the fact that Sierra also was no longer active on social media. Again, as I mentioned earlier, Sierra lived for social media. She also had no communications on her phone whatsoever. It all abruptly stopped shortly after 7.10 a.m. on March 16th. With this in mind, though they initially thought runaway, they really started honing in on the possibility that this was an abduction. When they tried to ping her phone location, it appeared that the phone had been turned off at some point, and so they were unable to pinpoint where she was or where she may have gone after leaving the house. Now, they had a designated group of people that were monitoring her cell phone activity around the clock to see if maybe she would power her phone back on. And miraculously, at 3.45 a.m. on Saturday, March 17th, so not even 24 hours later, her phone sent out a quick ping. And when I say quick ping, I mean a really quick ping. This wasn't like the phone was powered on and then left on. This was more of like the phone would ping out and then stop, and then ping out, and then stop. And this happened repeatedly. The location of this ping was coming from about a half a mile away from where Sierra lived in the middle of a large farm field. By sunup, they had created a search team that set out as soon as day broke to begin searching this field for Sierra's small Samsung Galaxy phone. And this was not going to be a very easy task for searchers. Not only was this phone a small black phone, but it had also rained all night, so they would be tromping through the mud trying to find it. Thankfully, though, they were able to locate it. And this is what is absolutely wild to me about this. This phone hadn't been powered on and off by a person in those early morning hours. Instead, somehow with it raining, the rain was getting into the phone port and it was tricking the phone into thinking that it was being charged and then it would turn on. It would then glitch out and turn back off and it did that repeatedly. Finding this phone was a victory in itself, but it also was weighing heavy on everyone's minds and hearts. This phone belonged to a 15-year-old girl who never let the thing out of her sight, yet here it was in the middle of a muddy field. Foul play was starting to sound more and more likely. Of course, this area was thoroughly searched and nothing else was found that belonged to Sierra, and they also found no signs of footprints or anything else in the mud which led the authorities to believe that Sierra was abducted and then her phone was tossed out the window of a moving car. After finding Sierra's phone, the search for her really ramped up, and investigators found out that there were approximately 250 registered sex offenders in a five-mile circumference around where Sierra lived. They created 20 teams of two officers to go out and make contact with all 250 sex offenders and question them about their whereabouts on March 16th. And one by one, each offender was cleared and their alibis completely checked out. But during this time when they were looking into these sex offenders, the authorities got a call that was extremely shocking to them. Sierra's father, Steve, went ahead and came forward to the authorities to tell them that he himself was a registered sex offender. 
From the start, he was just trying to do whatever he could to help find his daughter. And when the investigators went down the path of sex offenders, he thought that it was in his best interest to come forward and just let the authorities know that he was on that list as well. Ultimately, his goal with being so forthcoming about this was to pretty much limit the amount of resources went into looking at him and to clear his name as quickly as he could. He fully cooperated and just wanted his daughter found and for him to be quickly cleared and so that the authorities could spend their time focusing on other possibilities and not on his past, which of course he was cleared. I did find though that his past is definitely troubling. He was charged with sexual molestation of his daughter's eight and nine-year-old friends back in 2009, according to CBS News. He did plead guilty to one of the charges and served a year in prison. Obviously, with him coming forward, the authorities really wanted to look into him as well, given his criminal past. But as I said, he was eventually ruled out. On Sunday, March 18th, ground searches were still being conducted all around Morgan Hill, and the community really rallied together for Sierra's family. They donated things, they came out to search, hung flyers, got the media's attention, and so much more. Her family has spoken on how much it meant to them to have this support, and it was during one of these searches on March 18th that volunteers made a huge discovery. About two miles away from Sierra's home, there was a rural road that had three buildings on it that were used for storage. Behind one of these buildings, there was a large cluster of cactuses, and shoved between the building and this cluster of cactuses, searchers found Sierra's black velour juicy couture bag. Inside the bag had the items that Sierra had discussed exchanging with her friend that morning and her other personal items. And disturbingly, among the personal items, all of her clothing, which included her jeans, shoes, underwear, bra, and the sweatshirt that she had been wearing in that selfie she had posted on social media before she vanished, were all inside. These items were sent off to the lab for further analysis, but this was a huge break for them. They immediately sent out helicopters to begin doing aerial searches, and they continued their ground searches as well. And in all, they searched up to a 300-mile radius looking for Sierra or anything else that could be found of hers. At this point, they were quite certain that they were looking for Sierra's body and that she was no longer alive. Twelve days after the items were sent off for testing, the authorities finally got the results in, and it was a huge break for them. First off, on the jeans, they not only found mud, but a form of lichen was also found on the jeans. And a botanist was brought in to explain this to authorities. And they said for this specific lichen to grow, it needs to be near a water source. Also on the jeans, they found glass road beads, which are used to create a reflection on roadways for nighttime driving. The theory that the authorities came up with is that Sierra had been drugged down a road and through an area where this lichen grows. Lastly, on the genes, they found a male's DNA. And with further testing, they were able to determine that it was semen. 
This was really heavy for everyone to hear because the possibility of sexual assault was now being considered. The DNA was entered into CODIS and thankfully they got a hit. The DNA belonged to a 21-year-old man by the name of Antolin Garcia Torres, who lived just seven miles away from Sierra's home in an RV park with his girlfriend and daughter. Before making contact with Antolin, the authorities tried to find a connection that he may have had with Sierra, but they couldn't find one. He is someone that she would have never crossed paths with. There was no contact prior to her going missing. He wasn't a friend. He obviously wasn't a classmate. There was zero reason as to why his DNA should have been found anywhere near Sierra, let alone his semen being found. They also started looking into Antolin's background and learned that he was an employee at Safeway. In 2009, while working at Safeway, there had been two attempted abductions in the parking lot of the Safeway where he worked. However, both of these cases went unsolved, but they were able to obtain a partial fingerprint off of a battery that had been put inside of a taser that the perpetrator had dropped in one of those cases. The print was so small, though, that it was unable to generate a link to anyone in the fingerprint database, which we will get into more details on that in just a bit. So though the authorities really believe that Sierra may have been murdered, they still hadn't recovered her body. So they held out this shred of hope that maybe Antolin was holding her captive. They set up a 24-hour surveillance on him. They wiretapped his phone, put a tracker on his car, and they were just hoping that he would eventually lead them to her. They also had two undercover officers move into the Maple Leaf RV park, posing as a couple so that they could watch his every move. They also were able to obtain surveillance footage from the only entrance and exit of the RV park to see if they could spot his red VW Jetta coming and going on the day that Sierra went missing, and they spotted it leaving that morning. But at first glance, they see that the video is timestamped for 8 o'clock in the morning. Sierra went missing sometime between 7.11 a.m. and 7.25. And on first thought, they were thinking, okay, this might not actually be our guy. But then they quickly learned that for daylight savings time, this RV park doesn't change the clocks on their surveillance cameras. So though it appeared to be 8 o'clock in the morning when he left the park, it was actually 7 a.m. From where he lived to where Sierra lived, it was about a 10 to 15 minute drive, placing him around her home between the exact time that she went missing. On that Friday, Antolin was not scheduled to work, yet he left his house at the same time he did every single morning when headed to work, which makes me wonder and really speculate if he had previously seen Sierra in the mornings waiting at the bus stop and he made the decision on that Friday to go and attack her. How long had he been watching Sierra and planning to do something to her? They watched the remaining surveillance for that day and found that Antolin did not return home until 12.57 p.m., leaving him with a six-hour window of time that was unaccounted for. 
after watching Antolin for six days, they found no significant movements that he made that indicated that he was holding Sierra against her will somewhere. And they switched gears and once more started treating this like she was no longer alive. After those six days of watching him, they decided it was time to make contact with him just to see if he would give anything away. They didn't bring him in for questioning, but instead they approached him at his trailer just to see what he would say and allow him to kind of control the conversation. Right off the bat, the investigator said that he had this cocky and arrogant air about him. He felt like he was smarter than the investigators. So the authorities start off by just saying that they're doing an investigation, telling Antolin he's not obligated to talk to them, but they're just trying to do this investigation. Antolin was very rude, and he interrupts them and says, I would like you to get to the point. So they tell him that the point is they're investigating the disappearance of a teenage girl. They asked him if he knew which case they were referring to, and he said, yeah, the one with the girl whose pictures are all over the flyers. They asked him if there was any reason that anyone would say that the two of them had a relationship going, and his reply was, quote, I doubt it. Why? End quote. And that is such an odd reply, but whatever. He continues on to say that he doesn't know Sierra. He had never seen her until she was on the news. And this was exactly what the authorities were hoping he would say. He was completely distancing himself from Sierra, stating that there was no way that he had known her, no way that he had interactions with her. After they spoke with Antlin, they continued to watch his every move to see if he would go somewhere that could potentially lead them once more to Sierra, whether dead or alive. We know that killers often go back to the scene of the crime, or they go back to where they have hidden a body just to check to make sure that they were still hidden well, or to make sure that the authorities weren't having activity in that area. But he didn't do that. Three days after their first initial contact, the authorities obtained a search warrant for his residence, as well as a warrant to seize his vehicle. They also brought him in for questioning. When asked about what he did on Friday, March 16th, he stated that he went fishing that morning. He said he left his house around 7.10 or 7.20 a.m. and got to his fishing hole around 8 a.m., once he was finished fishing, he went to the Bank of America to cash his paycheck and then went to a gas station before going home. Through this questioning, Antolin once more puts himself right around Sierra's home at the time of the abduction. They also asked him if he could think of any reason at all that his DNA would just be out there floating around. And he had the weirdest reply ever. He said that he was embarrassed to admit it, but he would frequently masturbate in his car, ejaculate on napkins or tissues, and then toss them out the window. So if his DNA was found out there, that was likely the reason why. And after they questioned him, they let him leave, but he wouldn't be free for too much longer. They were able to obtain the footage from the Bank of America where he cashed his check and it appeared that his jeans on the lower half had been wet, like he had been in contact with some sort of water while out there on the morning of March 16th. Investigators also brought in a fingerprint expert who was able to take that small partial print from that attempted abduction and compare it to Antolin Garcia Torres' fingerprints. 
they were able to positively identify that the partial print had belonged to Antolin leading the investigators to believe that Antolin had progressed over time. When the forensics came back for Antolin's car, they found that Sierra's DNA was on the rear door handles. They also found a single strand of her hair wrapped up in a rope that he had kept in his trunk, as well as a set of gloves that had her DNA on them. With all of this evidence, 66 days after Sierra's disappearance, they officially arrested and charged Antolin Garcia Torres with kidnapping and first-degree murder. Now, this was not going to be an easy case to handle in court, largely because they had no body. These types of cases are not impossible. However, they come with their own set of hurdles. But even more challenging for prosecutors was the fact that they didn't even have a crime scene. They didn't have a murder weapon. But despite that, they were confident that they were going to get a guilty verdict. Antolin Garcia Torres' trial didn't begin until years later. On January 30th, 2017, the trial finally got underway nearly five years after her murder. The defense put up a serious fight trying to cast any shred of doubt that they could on the evidence that the prosecutors presented. But come May 4th, 2017, the jury was released to deliberate, and the following day, May 8th, they came back with a guilty verdict on first-degree murder. He was also found guilty on three counts of attempted kidnapping for those 2009 cases. Antolin was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and for years, searches were conducted frequently to try and find Sierra. Hundreds of volunteers gave up many hours to help bring her home, but her remains have yet to be found. To this day, Antolin has maintained his innocence and has refused to give up the location of her remains. And while many feel that this case is closed and justice has been served, her family they are left still wondering where she is. Though they know she's no longer alive, they still long to bring her home and give her the proper burial she deserves. There is a Facebook page dedicated to helping find her, which I will have the link in the description of this episode. I do believe that the page is ran by family, so please go over there and show your love and support and to watch for any further updates on this case or searches that they may be conducting. I hope that someday this case really weighs heavy on Antolin's heart and he finally comes forward with information for her family. I just can't imagine the pain that they must go through on the daily just wondering where she is. I will, of course, keep an eye on this case, and if there's any updates, I will be sure to let you all know. If you guys don't already follow me on Instagram, be sure to find me at Crimeaholly. I also have officially created a Facebook group called Crime with Holly Podcast Discussion Group, Both in there and on Instagram, I will share pictures and information pertaining to the cases that I cover. In the Facebook group, I also will encourage everybody to share anything true crime related. You can also follow me over on TikTok at crimewithholly.podcast, where I create bite-sized true crime content. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. Until next time, be aware and take care.